The boy who wants to be king of the high school is disabled. He's also cunning and cruel. If that scenario doesn't ring a bell, think Shakespeare. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Richard III is one of Shakespeare's most enduring villains. And back before the COVID pandemic started, a new adaptation of Shakespeare's classic had begun making the rounds. The play, from the mind of Mike Liu, was called Teenage Dick. And along with the unique title, it came with a substantial twist. Liu took most of the plot and characters from Richard III and moved them to a modern-day American high school. In Teenage Dick, the Richard character has cerebral palsy. Buckingham, who's called Buck, is in a wheelchair. King Edward is Eddie, the quarterback. Clarence is Clarissa. And, as in Shakespeare, everyone's in a life-or-death struggle to be class president. Yes, it's a comedy. Now that theaters are returning to live performances, Teenage Dick has three productions scheduled. One here in Washington, D.C. at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, one at the Huntington Theater Company in Boston, and one at the Pasadena Playhouse in California. Mike Liu joined us from his apartment in New York to talk about the play's origin, tropes around disability, and just how similar Richard III is to high school. We call this podcast, Plots Have I Laid, Inductions Dangerous. Mike Liu is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Mike, there's so many ways to go with Richard III. How did you end up with it as a comedy set in high school? Um, I uh, received a commission from Greg Moscala, who runs a company called The Apathite. He started the company as a way to talk about the disabled experience. He himself uh, has cerebral palsy and was trying to create more roles for disabled actors. Senior elections are now upon us, and from here I will vault past my current inglorious station, not by campaigning, not by a pity vote, but by systematically destroying the competition. Yeah, I'll take down Eddie and Clarissa and hold dominion over this whole school! So he fully came up with, like, I would like to commission you to write an adaptation of Richard III set in high school called Teenage Dick. And I just really loved that title. And um, and the idea was to really reappropriate this character and look at tropes around disability. He makes sport of governance, whereas I am one who's not shaped for sports. I, Richard, am junior class secretary. <laughs> he kept on sending me these... Um, short video clips of sports teams in high school sort of ostentatiously including a disabled student and um, the frustration of that, I guess you'd call it like virtue signaling now, um, and feeling as though there are few depictions of disabled people that are honest, that it's either that historically you're this devil or that like some kind of angel and feeling like there's not very much wiggle room in there. And so for whatever reason, I think that that kind of got under his skin and he, and he <laughs> sort of conceived of this idea of I like, totally get what if it. I stuck Richard III in high school and how would he react to this? Because if you look at the text of Richard III, it's a morality tale that like this is somebody who should not have been 
king who aspired to be what society told to him he should be and then society like violently strikes him down because of it so yeah <laughs> take all that and put it in high school so then machiavelli lists four pathways to power can anyone name me the first oh yes richard the first pathway to power is fortune ah. whether by being born into royalty or having a principality bestowed upon you fortune is the easiest path good and the second second is virtue <laughs> Through strength of character, a prince may inspire in his phalanx a sense of virile agator and amore patriae. Yeah, I was asking, because some of the scenes that deal with disability, they really, really do hit well. And I'm thinking especially the one in which Anne, who's the cool girl in school, she's agreed to go to a dance with Richard, and she's, but she has to teach Richard how to dance. Five, six, seven, eight. And while they're doing that, she asks him what it feels like. What's it like? Like the way that you move? What does it feel like to you? I'm obsessed with movement, and the way that you move is natural to you, but it seems so counter-natural to me, and yet also quite fluid. Does it hurt your joints, even, moving that way? If that's too much to ask, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. And he has this great answer. You know how sometimes in winter, when you're about to slip on an ice patch, you didn't know it was there, how you like... Brace yourself before you're about to slip on the ice? Yeah. Well, that is what it's like for me all the time. Because I myself am able-bodied, a lot of the sort of lived experience parts of, of Richard's character are coming from Greg very generously using his own experience as a jumping-off point. So he commissioned it and also ended up acting in the world premiere of it. Um, and I developed the play alongside him and um, another actor, Shannon DeVito, who played Buck. Oh, Buck! Hey! Did you hear the good news? Eddie's running for re-election. I am bringing this Shakespearean historical eye to it and this, you know, wry, cheeky sensibility and all these political uh, underpinnings to what I'm doing, but then also really leaning on uh, my actors to check me in terms of whether what I'm creating resonates with them. And so it was like a really bespoke play process where I would try a scene and they'd be like, how does this, you know, how does this feel on you? And they'd be like, that doesn't feel so great. And then I would like work with them. And that also carried through when we did a production at uh, the Donmar Warehouse in London, the actor playing Richard had hemoplegia as opposed to CP. And so then I did the same kind of thing where I adapted lines to fit him. And so all of that has been this really fascinating exercise in bespoke playwriting. You are evil. No, you are. <laughs> okay, but Miss York locks up all her shit. It's not like I have access to it. Access? Are you kidding? You're a total kleptomaniac, Buck. Don't you remember? You're the one that taught me how to do this. Hold oh, my keys. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did teach you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta go. Verily, Buck. Hi, the ends. Okay, thou has to stop talking like that. Seriously. F***ing stop. <laughs> it fits the setting so well, because I was thinking that issues of difference are so heightened in high school. And I know this high school setting wasn't your idea initially, uh, but did it immediately resonate with you because of this similarity? There's a lot of precedents for Shakespearean adaptations that take place in high school. And for me, what I'm tapping into is that when you watch a Shakespeare play, the stakes of like royal ascendancy feel pretty far away from what we're experiencing right now. And in a way, high school is a really good analog because everything feels so huge. And um, 
and the, the power grabs are so raw. And, um, you know, so there's, there's something funny about putting like a Shakespearean context in high school too, because it feels very safe. And yet tragedies happen in high schools all the time. And so there's a sense that like, oh, this feels life or death, but eventually you'll grow out of it. But A, that's not always the case. And B, uh, something that Greg talked about a lot was when he was growing up, this feeling that, oh, this is uh, this is going to be my life state for the rest of my life. And that it's not just something that I grow out of, that I'll always be a disabled person. And um, so how do I navigate that? And so that um, mm. felt like a really natural fit to me to stick it in high school where everything you know, feels huge, and sometimes it actually is. Yeah, and we have that whole genre of adaptations like 10 Things I Hate About You. It seems like really your choices are the high school or war. <laughs> right, yeah. And choice. I think, you know, like in, in um, a lot of the theater adaptations that are doing a direct production of a Shakespeare play, but uh, maybe putting a historical gloss on it, that, yeah, that's always sort of like Vietnam War or Iraq War. But here, uh, high school just feels like it fit. There are parents, though, in the world of teenagers, and parents loom large in Shakespeare's play. Richard's mother hates him from birth. The, the mother figure in the play, Queen Margaret, plays a really prominent role. But you don't have any parents in this play. What was your thinking on that? Yeah, you know, when I started the play, I read through it from, like, a almost structural basis. Like, I really kind of wanted to see, like, what the nuts and bolts were. And so during that process, I looked at the cast and I, you know, like on a modern theater budget could not portray everybody in there. So uh, Eddie, the quarterback, is Edward and Clarissa is Clarence. And and then uh, the character of Anne in the original looms really large for me because he has this seduction scene and it's sort of the height of his razor wit to be able to win her over. And then she dies off stage, And so... Margaret didn't make the cut. Um, right. But, uh, I but figured I it was that, like, a budget decision. It's like partially budget and partially just sort of like what, you know, what what is the core that you're trying to get at? And um, for me, it was about uh, getting your way to the top by hook or by crook. And in the original, there's like that prominent cursing scene. And here, I think that it's a little bit more internally generated that like Richard's undone by his own psychological shortcomings as opposed to some kind of outside force that like the world casts him out. It's like he sort of does this to himself. And, and before I go on, you said you look to the structure of Shakespeare and to the nuts and bolts, and that can mean different things to different people. So what do you mean by the nuts and bolts, specifically with Richard III? Yeah, it starts off of a soliloquy where Richard sort of woos the audience and, and you become a co-conspirator with him and you kind of start to root for him. And there's a lot of direct address and there's a lot of him saying what he's going to do and then doing it and then saying, see how I did that. And um, <laughs> Great villain and then, behavior. Yeah. And then the scenes become a lot more impressionistic. There's a lot fewer check-ins with the audience. And then when you get to the war part, it's all very sort of fractured and impressionistic as it goes out of control. I don't know about like the historical audience, but like for, to me, for an audience today, what happens is that you start out on his side and, and then as it as he gets crueler, the scenes in a way get colder and they're not like inviting you anymore and so you turn on him. Instead of scenes that show his intellect and wit, it becomes just stuff happens to him and he reacts to it. And so I mirrored that structure in this play and you know, and then stole a bunch of language too. Now that winter formal gives way to glorious spring fling <laughs> my kingdom for some horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of moments when it sounds like Shakespearean language, 
but I guess it's not. Is it not meet that lovers be spared the springes of previous lovers, lest new lovers fall ensnared to the self-same trap? Don't use the word lover. Don't evade. The way that I was trying to use that language here was sometimes direct allusion, sometimes stealing from other plays, but in all cases it was that this is the wavelength that Richard thinks on, and he's so above his peers in terms of his intellect that that like sometimes he uses that Shakespearean language to demonstrate like sort of how much of a smart guy he is, and sometimes that's just uh, the thoughts that are racing through his head while other people are thinking more sort of contemporary American language uh, thoughts. And then yeah, that comes across that that the Shakespeare esque side of Richard is that there's motive there. A word of you, Sirrah. Dude, what did you call me? Stuntime. What does it matter what this is if all the thises get sepulchred in this room? So, Roseland High School, prepare for your fate. My first step to power is to land the first date. And it sets him apart and it makes it so that he's extremely gifted in one aspect of his personality, but at a deficit uh, in terms of his empathy and in terms of you know, his connection with other people. And, uh, and then his physical disability gets tossed in there in terms of like complicating factor of how he perceives it himself and how other people perceive him. He feels as though he has to compensate for his disability by being the smartest person in the room and by kind of putting people in their place intellectually. You don't even know me. I mean, we've known each other since middle school, but this is the most that we've talked. You're right. I don't know you. So why would I ask you out? Because I pity you? Whoa, no one's asking for pity here. Why, do you pity me? I... Or do you fear me? Are you afraid you'll contract cerebral palsy just by the very taint of my touch? What the? See? You hate me for what I am. No, I don't. And then gets pushback and is like, is that pushback because people are biased against people with a disability or is that pushback because he's being a dick and he doesn't know? And um, so that's kind of how the language goes in. And, and a lot of it's just the comedic sensibilities and having fun and smashing together this like really contemporary high school language with Elizabethan language in the same way that when you encounter... Shakespeare with a production, it's like, it's pretty close to uh, contemporary English, but there's a lot that's not. And, um, you know, how do you reconcile that? And how do you speak those words, I think, is an issue that's really live for actors today. And so I wanted to put that into the play. And he's not my only rival in this. I, I may think I'm playing second fiddle, but alas, I am woefully third. Oh, well, fiddle sticks to the fiddler who fiddles about. If my pleas fall on deaf ears, I'll change my tune. Buck? Hey! Oh. <laughs> your, your spirited defense of our footballer-in-chief has swayed me entirely. Eddie and I certainly have our differences, but he's not a bad chap. If you support Eddie as I do, as clearly I as well do, then what's to be done with the Clarissa situation? Wait, so what situation? Clarissa for president! Vote Clarissa for senior class president! Another aspect that gets kind of tricky is that there are profound conversations that happen, uh, but this is a comedy, and so you're playing off of light and dark. And one of these conversations I'm thinking about is between Buck and Richard, and it's about flying beyond their boundaries. I have a philosophical question. Oh, I love those. Go ahead. Do you think our social station is circumountable or is it immutable? Good question. Immutable? No, but... Don't you think we can overcome our circumstance, given sufficient cunning and skill? No, no I don't. <laughs> but I'm not like you, yearning to fly beyond nature's boundaries like some sort of disabled nerd Icarus. It gets to some really important stuff, but it, it also gets broken up with laughs. So w what were you going for there? Oh, do you want to go with me in the dance? 
Not as like a date or whatever, but as like friends? Yeah. I'll pass. Okay, whatever, jerk face. It's fine by me. It's not like I wanted to be the matchy-matchy disabled couple. Fine. <laughs> fine? Okay. You do know the Sadie Hawkins dance is where the girl asks the guy out, right? And I'm like the only girl that talks to you. <laughs> Pretty much all of my plays are comedies, but I also think there's something that's more honest about comedy to me or that like opens you up in a way to truths. And um, there's a great feedback loop with your audience. And you know, you, you, you tell a joke and they laugh and you know that they're there with you and then you smack them in the gut. <laughs> uh, um, it's almost like it's the best uh, way that I know to get right on the same page with an audience. Wow, no, she is out of your league. <laughs> She's smart, she's super talented. You know she's a quasi-professional dancer? But now she's in wounded bird mode. See, if I can get her to take me to the dance, then I will instantly vault past my station, no, and for once people might see me. Okay, Richard, if you had to ask Anne to the dance, that would already be a humiliating rejection situation. But getting her to ask you? I mean, what's your angle? Hypnosis or catch? <laughs> Dramas get the most lauded, but I'm really skeptical of them. <laughs> Just because I, I, sometimes I feel manipulated by a drama, and um, I think it's actually a little harder to manipulate people with comedy because it's so... You're right there with it or you're not, and you can't really fake it, whereas I, I feel like you can fake a drama, like you can fake gravitas. So <sighs> I, I find comedy to be more difficult, but in a way more truthful. And in the same way that uh, in Richard III, you know, he seduces the audience with his intellect that here, it's very charming and disarming that Richard makes you laugh and you're laughing with him. And then, I mean, this is, you know, we talked about the structure thing, right? Like, so in the same way that uh, it feels as though Shakespeare is letting you into this guy's head. And um, like, I in a way, want to disarm the audience and make them feel like, oh, I know what this is. It's a uh, low stakes Richard in high school and it's fun and everybody's going to be safe. And um, as Richard really starts to wrestle with whether he's going to go with Anne and, and make a positive choice or throw her under the bus, um, then you're conflicted about it. And But he's still joking around with Buck and they have a genuine friendship that curdles. In, I, I don't know if it's in the same way that Buckingham and Richard have, have a gen. I mean, they have an alliance. That <laughs> kind of a different, yeah, yeah, but, different, uh, different trajectory. Nonetheless, though, like, yeah, they have real conversations about what does it mean that uh, to be disabled and how do people treat me and how much of it is bias and how much of it is something that's in your head and uh, right. And they talk about predetermination. Yeah, and so I think that like all this stuff is swirling around among two people that have that connection, and that was really the intent behind it was to try to go deep on some of these questions that are really pressing for Richard to the point that he feels as though if I become president, then somehow I've like um, ruled the social system and overcome all of the obstacles that people are throwing up at me. Yeah, and this gets us to this issue of Richard's motivation and his role as a villain. I never meant for you to get hurt. Richard, would you take some damn responsibility for once? Look at us. Buck, Clarissa, and me, these are your friends, supposedly. So then what, I'm the villain? You know, did you want him to He's just clearly be evil throughout? Although it's clear at points in your play that he just doesn't even get that 
he, he's the villain. I think that he, uh, so in the original, it's as if Richard is villainous because he's disabled. And here, what I wanted it to be was that it's a talented, smart guy who doesn't know where to put all the smart and talents and almost as if he's uh, trying on clothes that are too big for him and then becomes that. So the source of the villainy is meant to be more psychological and more character driven and less of, as I said earlier, like a morality tale where it's like, this person should never have been king to begin with. So like we as a world cast him out that instead it's the, he is so, um, feels so boxed in by people treating him differently because he's disabled that he doesn't know what to do with that. And he can only go for this presidency by any means necessary. And that's really the tragedy of it. He can't make a different choice. And so he is a villain, but it's meant to be a tragedy that he chooses to be one or that in some ways he gets boxed into being one as opposed to that, like, he was born that way. You know, in the play, Anne is a cipher in some ways. You know, it's just a hard thing to wrap your head around her choice of Richard. But your Anne, I, I get. I know this is Richard's story, so I'll be out of your way in a minute, but... Funny how it's always Richard's story. Or, you know, not Richard's, but Hamlet's, or Henry VIII's, mm, mm, mm. or Eddie's, or Tom's. Okay, so that got a little out of hand, but once I explain my position, I'll... <laughs> what are you doing? If this were my story, it'd be about how I always kept my head down and waited. Just waited patiently and survived and then left this place. Because this is not me. This is not who I am. I am not some idiot girl who got pregnant and everyone, everyone knows. I don't want to spoil the ending, but could you talk about that? What what does she see in, in Dick and what is going on with her? I mean, I think that the relationship here is really meant to thread a line between two people that are having a genuine connection that see each other and um, two people that are sort of using each other. And I've spoken to actors who have found it really hard to play in or sort of a chore to play in because it's like you're you're patently a foil for whoever's playing Richard. And and Richard plays on some really vulnerable parts of her. I mean, really, he kind of, there's there's a whole, like, political correctness thing going on. Like, it'll be a point for her to see above his, or overlook his disability and be the cool girl going out with this outcast. It's it's funny. It's because I'm, I'm playing with trope a little bit. So it's this super popular alpha female all around. I think that these are all these all of these characters flirt with trope in terms of, you know, like this meathead quarterback or uh, and then they kind of earn the 3D character of it, uh, hopefully, depending on. <laughs> yeah, how the production which, goes. In which any is given kind day. of the story of high school, right? Yeah, so it's meant to be a complicated relationship that starts purely with surfaces. And then they do genuinely see each other, but then he can't accept that. And that's sort of their tragedy. So when people walk out of the theater after seeing Teenage Dick, well, what do you want them to take away with them? I really just want us all to consider the ways that we do or don't take people in sincerely. And if you're able-bodied to think about the ways that your perceptions about disability are formed by media depictions or, or by a kind of shorthand. And I hope that if you are disabled that I have done service to this argument because, it, you know, again, since it's not my lived experience, it's like I, um, 
am subject to whatever scrutiny, you know, somebody brings that, uh, but, uh, I think that overall what I'm trying to do is to just look at the way that we take people in and ask for a little bit of a wider lens. Do you want them to think differently in any way about Richard III? I think that Shakespeare, for me at least, uh, growing up was so ubiquitous on the curriculum that it's like more like it's using a like a readily accessible forum to talk about something else. But I do hope that if you are a Shakespeare fan and if you know this language and, and know these plays, that this adaptation will make you think a little bit differently about it. I mean, I actually, um, I, I realize that a lot of times uh, adaptations are protests that are somebody else has set a precedent and you're subverting it to add your own perspective to it. And um, so I've seen a lot of other plays that are doing this. Um, Jihei Park wrote a play called Peerless that is an adaptation of uh, the Scottish play that is about like Asian tiger parenting and like the need to be perfect. And um, I think also of uh, David Ajmi wrote a play called 3C that's like a, a satire on Three's Company. And it, it, so it's sort of like you, you take these existing works and twist them just enough that you're asking people to question their assumptions and to shear from the uh, unquestioned adoration of the original. Well, thank you for the twisting of Richard III, and thanks for talking today. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Mike Liu is a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow, the Mellon Foundation Playwright-in-Residence at Magi Theatre in New York, and a former La Jolla Playhouse Artist-in-Residence. His plays include Tiger Style, Bike America, and Micro Crisis. His play Teenage Dick is scheduled for three productions this fall and winter. It opens at Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. on September 22nd and runs through October 17th. Followed by the Huntington Theatre Company in Boston from December 3rd through January 9th and the Pasadena Playhouse in California from February 1st through February 27th. Mike Liu was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Plots Have I Laid, Inductions Dangerous, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt and Susan Palio at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.